The topic is learning to swim upstream, fighting the silent assimilation of the Torah world. The silent assimilation of the Torah world. This is a topic that's massive. Uh, we could spend weeks and months and probably years going through this and delving in and trying to understand all the facets. I want to share with you a couple of ideas. Because often we, we speak about the issues facing the Jewish people in generalities, with broad brushstrokes. We could speak about assimilation, all of the, the Jews who are not affiliated. We could use terms like off the derech or on the derech, kids at risk. We could speak about the religious community going through the motions but lacking the, the ruach lacking the passion. And these are all issues, but I think perhaps a more pervasive problem where the only way we could address it is by first recognizing what it is, is understanding that the ideologies of the secular culture are changing, are evolving rapidly, and with that comes this infiltration into Jewish culture as well, into what we call Orthodox Jewish culture. And there are many concepts, there are many beliefs, there are many values that somehow we could fit into our way of life and our worldview. But if we analyze them closely, we realize that many of them have nothing to do with authentic Torah Judaism. How we advertise a, a wonderful getaway with glad kosher food and Jewish music and wonderful inspirational speakers. What are we trying to exploit? What are we trying to tap into? Are we tapping into taiva, kavod, indulgence? Many, many things in the Frum Jewish world are not from and are not Jewish. <clears throat> give you an example. I was at a, um, at a dinner before Purim, and the dinner was held in a, a particular synagogue, and uh, one of the congregants, a friend of mine, came to me and he showed me a flyer that he found. The flyer was advertising an evening in celebration of Vashti celebrating the legacy of Vashti the Queen. And it was a thing about uh, promoting uh, women in Judaism, and there was f Jewish food that was going to be served, and some dancing. So he was showing it to me just as, as a funny thing. On the flyer itself, however, there was a silhouette of somebody dancing. So as soon as he put the flyer in front of me, I, I naturally turned my face away. And he, you know, he realized that I felt a little bit awkward seeing that picture, and therefore I looked away, and then he, he put it down, and he apologized, and eh, it's no big deal. He came to me that Shabbos, very insightful person, and he said, I want to thank you, Rabbi, for teaching me that lesson. So I was wondering what he was talking about, and he said, he explained that when I brought that flyer to you, I also saw the picture. I didn't think twice it didn't even phase me 
to think maybe this would be inappropriate to show the rabbi. And he went on to say that he was thinking, why didn't it face him? He has a yeshiva background. He himself learned in yeshiva for quite a few years. And uh, it dawned on him that perhaps because he's so exposed at work, on his iPhone, on his computer, in the office, wherever he is, he's seeing things all the time that have become so normal and so acceptable He's lost the sensitivity of what's appropriate for a yid to see. What's not appropriate? We live in a world where there are many ideologies, there are many philosophies, there are many values, there are many isurim that we've not only accepted, but we've embraced. We just finished Shabbos HaGadol. Shabbos HaGadol commemorating the tzivui, the instruction that Hashem gave Moshe. V'yikra Moshe l'chol zikna Yisrael, and Moshe called to all the elders of Yisrael. V'yomra aleihem, and he said to them, Mishchu akuchu. Literally those words mean, pull back and take. Kuchu lachem, take for yourselves, atzon, sheep, l'mishpachoseichem, according to your families. V'shochatu es aposach, and Shech the Carbon Pesach. Mishchu Kuchu. Now, many Midrashim and many Mefarshim address the question as to why it had to be such a public affair. Why taking the sheep into the home for four days and then the 14th of Nisan, taking it outside, in front of all the Egyptians, and Shechting this sheep and then making a barbecue and then eating that together as a family that night, which was the first Pesach Seder. Why do it in such a public way? So many Midrashim say that it was in order to once and for all show the Egyptians that your view of life is wrong. You're a bunch of pagans and you believe that the sheep has some kind of supernatural power. We know that in Egyptian culture the Se was, was viewed as a deity. And therefore Hashem was telling Moshe, tell the Jewish people, take the sheep outside, shecht it and show the Egyptians that there's nothing more to a sheep. It's a good lamb chop, but there's nothing supernatural. However, there's a different approach in the Midrash as well. Midrash says that, Kishahayim b'mitzrayim, hayyobden avodas kochavim, v'lo hayyobden osah. When the Jewish people were in Egypt, we were also worshipping idols. Veloha you ozvin osa, and we wouldn't let go of it. We wouldn't abandon that way of life. Hashem said to Moshe, As long as the Jewish people are worshipping the gods of Egypt, they will not be redeemed. And therefore, go and tell them, to let go of your evil ways, and to once and for all deny that whole world of paganism. Pull back, referring to ourselves, that we should pull ourselves away from those false and foreign ideologies and take the sheep and shecht it. 
not to prove anything to the Egyptians, but to prove everything to ourselves, that Ein Od Milvado, there is only a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And although we may live in a place where they have a certain belief system, and that does have a very powerful influence on how we think and how we feel, shech the sheep to prove to ourselves that there's only Hashem. The Rambam and the Mor Nevochim takes this approach as well in understanding the mitzvah of the Korban Pesach. The Rambam writes, L'nakos atmeinu min The goal of shechting the sheep was to cleanse ourselves of those ideas. This was 3,300 years ago. And this was after the Jewish nation going through a whole year of clear revelation, Hashem's hand every step of the way, seeing the ten makos, seeing the nisim beniflos. But still, although they looked really from, and I'm sure many of them wearing strimals and payas and davening, but in the back of their head, they still had a little bit of that soft voice telling them, maybe, maybe there is something here. Maybe this sheep does have some kind of power. Maybe it could help me somehow as a good luck charm. After seeing the clear Yad Hashem, we, the Jewish people, were still influenced by the culture of Egypt, and therefore there was a need, take the God and destroy it. We think about the different ideas around us nowadays in 2017, and how the secular culture is changing and evolving, quote-unquote, rapidly. Things that most Americans did not believe in 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, today they believe in it wholeheartedly, and they'll fight for it. And as America changes and the world changes, our community, no matter how insular we are, we change as well. And we're impacted in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. I'll give you one example. I was giving a, a class to a group of non-religious Jews, and the topic was, what makes somebody Jewish? And there was a classic back and forth where somebody was arguing, why should it make a difference, the, the parents you're born to, if a person is a good person and they believe in Hashem and they believe in the Torah, that that should make them Jewish. And to the contrary, if someone's born to Jewish parents, but they don't believe in the Torah, so then they shouldn't be Jewish. So I was trying to explain that just like in the physical world, we have certain realities. So too in the metaphysical world, there's a reality to being Jewish. It's not just based on your belief system, but it's something intrinsic. Now, a person always has the ability to convert and to become Jewish, but there's something real, there's something natural to Jewishness. So I gave the example, and I thought I would use this as a way of helping them understand. I said, let's say I would wake up tomorrow morning, and I would feel like a she. I no longer want to be a man, I feel like a woman. Does that make me a woman? And there were two women sitting there, mid-50s, maybe early 60s, and they start nodding their head. And I assume they're nodding in agreement. Of course that doesn't make me a woman just because I feel that way. 
until they broke the silence. And one of them explained their, their opinion. Of course it does. If that's your identity, if that's how you feel and that's how you view yourself, then of course that's your gender. And this is going back a couple of years ago before this whole conversation was as public and as much of a thing as it is nowadays. And I was caught off guard. I, are you serious? Of course. If that's your identity, then that's your gender. So I didn't know what to respond. So I, I did what any self-respecting rabbi would do. I started barking. Woof, woof! Woof, woof! <laughs> they didn't quite get it, and I, I explained. Let's say I feel like a dog. Does that mean I'm a dog? No, it means I'm a human being in Nebuch. I, I have an issue that I feel like an animal. And the response was, oh, Rabbi, that's totally different. That's a whole different thing. I was trying to understand. Like, when do we say your feelings can override reality? And when do we say, no, just because you feel that way, it doesn't mean it's true. But I guarantee that those two people, if we were having the same conversation five years ago, they would not have had that point of view. All of us, secular, religious, we are all influenced by the culture around us. There's so many examples that we may not even pick up on. What's our view of older people? In the secular world, although it's not explicitly said, there's a feeling. There's a feeling that the older you are and the less you could do, the less you're able to be productive in the society, then we view you as uh, you're leeching from society. You're, you're, you're not with it. You're not in the in. You're not in the no. Old people have very little value in the secular world. In the Torah perspective, the Gemara Kedushin tells us that when someone's a Zokain, Jew or not Jew, you stand up when they walk in the room. Because having that life experience means they know something that you don't know. Reverence, awe, admiration, respect. These are words that don't exist nearly as much in the secular world. Is there a middle ground? Can we say, listen, obviously we don't want to assimilate into the world around us. Obviously we want to stay true to our Torah values. But at the same time, I want to be modern orthodox. Where I live in the modern world, and I could gain from contemporary society, and at the same time, stay true to my belief system. That phrase, modern orthodox, without getting political and into groups, the phrase itself really depends on how we view it. If a person is saying, I'm modern orthodox, and what they mean by that is, well, I'm, a, I'm living in the present world, and right now we view this as modern, even though 75 years from now we will not be modern, we'll be ancient. But I'm a religious person trying my best to keep the Torah and the mitzvot, and I'm gaining from technology, and I use a computer, and I use electricity. So being a modern person who keeps Torah is, is fine. There's no mitzvah to, to hide ourselves from the world of medicine and technology and all the wonderful things and discoveries that we have. If when somebody says they're modern orthodox, 
what they mean, perhaps even subconsciously, is I'm Jewish, but I allow myself to be influenced. I allow myself to absorb the values of the world around me. Then that's a very dangerous position to take. I want to share with you from both Yoshua and Eliyahu Novi, their view of a middle ground. Yeshua, before he passes away, he has a goodbye speech to Klal Yisrael. And he says, V'ata yiru Hashem v'ivdu You should serve Hashem with purity, with truth. V'hasiru es Elohim asher ovdu avoseichem be'ever hanar uba mitzrayim and you should remove the gods that your ancestors worshipped across the river, referring to the ancestors of, of Avram, of Terach, and his family, Uba Mitzrayim and the gods you worshipped in Egypt. Get rid of those. Ve'ivdu es Hashem and serve Hashem. The question is, Yeshua is talking to Klal Yisrael. After they've entered Eretz Yisrael, after they've been led through Nisim and the different battles, the Jewish people don't have idols in their pockets. Get rid of the Buddha, throw it away. They didn't have them. What was Yeshua telling them? Explains the Mitzudas David, Hesiru mehalev. Yeshua was saying, you may not be doing this actively, but it's still there. In the recesses of your heart, in the depths of your mind, there's still those foreign ideologies lurking. Get rid of them and serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Yeshua goes on to say, And if it's hard for you, if it's literally, if it's evil in your eyes to serve Hashem, then then choose today who will you serve? Will you serve the idols of your ancestors? Or the gods of the Yomori? But let me tell you that I and my family, we will serve Hashem. It's a strange presentation. It sounds like Yeshua was telling Klai Yisrael, I know you have these things, these philosophies in your head. Get rid of them and be fully committed to a life of Torah. And allow yourselves to imbibe and become saturated with Das Torah. If that's hard for you, then you have to choose something you're going to serve. So either choose idolatry or choose Hashem. I'm choosing Hashem. Why is he making it so black and white? Why is he making it so extreme? And we find the same thing in the famous episode at Har Carmel, where Eliyahu Novi comes and he's speaking to the hundreds of Jews who have been influenced by the Avodah Zorah of Baal. And Eliyahu Novi seems to give them a very similar ultimatum. The Pasuk tells us in Malachim, Ve'yigash Eliyahu el kol he approached the entire people, the group that was there, he said, how long will you continue to waver? How long will you continue to go back and forth? 
if Hashem is God, if Hashem is true, then pursue Him. Vim Baal, and if the Baal is right, if Avodah Zorah is the truth, Luchu Acharov, then chase after Him. But there's no middle ground. Both Yeshua and later on in history, Elioa Novi are sending a clear message to the Jewish people. There is no middle ground. We all need to serve something. That was the line in Yeshua. Choose today, what are you going to serve? But human nature is, we have to be devoted, we have to be committed to serving something. If that something is Hashem, Matova Manoyim. If that something is not Hashem, it will be something else. It may be Avodah Zarah, it may be oneself, it may be atheism. <coughs> why is it, ever, ever have the question, why is it that there are well-known atheists who are so outspoken, who are so aggressive, who spend their entire lives writing books and giving lectures, trying to convince you that your belief is wrong and old-fashioned and primitive? What's the point of them spending their time trying to convince you that you're wrong? In their worldview, there is no creator. There is no intelligent design. Life is random. It's purposeless. What we do here has no eternal ramification. So why do you care what I'm doing? Why do you care about trying to prove your point? And the answer is simple. Because as human beings... We need to have a mission. We need to have something we're serving. The Malbim explains, Malbim, one of the great commentators on, on Nach in the 1800s, he explains the line of Elio Novi, Ki atem poschim rayonos. You, the Jewish people, are going back and forth between two ideas. Ve'einchem yodim esmit avodun, and you're not sure who to serve. You can't make a decision. But this is impossible. Staying where you are is not an option. Because between the two extremes, there's no middle ground. If Hashem is truth, then don't allow yourself to be influenced or impacted by anything else. Delve into those pure waters of Das Torah and try to understand the Torah not from an outside-in perspective, but from an inside-out perspective. Let us not rationalize. Let us not try to incorporate what we have that we like and somehow stuff it into Judaism. If Hashem is true and Torah is true, let's understand what's being said. Having a middle ground is very difficult. We had this challenge back in Egypt 3,300 years ago. We had this challenge when Yeshua was departing from the Jewish people, and we had this challenge when Elioah Novi was approaching the nation of Bihar Carmel. And now 3,000 years later, we still have the exact same struggle. We're from, we're learning Torah, we're doing mitzvos but we're allowing those ideas to sleep in, to sneak in slowly behind the scene, changing our understanding of ourselves and the life around us, and changing our connection with Torah. Aaron Feldman, Shlita, the Rosh Hashiva in Baltimore, he spoke recently 
at a Torah Masora convention. I want to share with you a couple of lines of what he said. Refeldman told the crowd that Judaism was under attack from many quarters. The most serious and insidious attack is the infiltration through various means of the value systems of our host nations into our society, resulting inevitably in our assimilation of those values. We must bring to the intention of our people and especially to our children what true Jewish values are and why we reject the culture of the nations. We are all subject to a subtle and ongoing indoctrination in Western civilization's view of life as centered on man and his attainment of physical pleasure. Nearly every advertisement contains the suggestion that the purchase of a particular product will assure us of the satisfaction of physical desires, of pleasure, or of personal recognition and importance. He goes on to say that in, in the Torah world, our whole goal is to overcome the Yetzirah. The greatest gavura, the ultimate strength of the human achievement, is to be able to be misgaber al to overcome the animalistic inclinations that we have. Rafaelman said that in the secular world, it's really the exact opposite. It's all about exploiting and enhancing the Yetzirah. How could I tap into the taiva? How can I tap into the lust for money? How could I tap into the, the, the need for recognition and outside validation? Feldman concluded his remarks by saying that Judaism is and always has been a countercultural force in human society. As long as we remain steadfast in our own beliefs and values, we will flourish. It is only when we begin to adopt the cultural understandings of the other nations that we fail. We must take up the battle to teach fellow Jews that our survival depends upon maintaining our uniqueness as a nation. This story with the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe. He had a particular chassid that he sent out somewhere in Indonesia. And the chassid would come back once a year and check in, and he would always complain to the, the Rebbe, it's so hard. Being in that environment is so tough on me and my wife. Every year, come back and complain, and the Rebbe would give him chizik, and he would encourage him to keep up the fight. Five or six years go by, and the chassid comes back, and he tells the Rebbe, you know what, Baruch Hashem, I think we're finally getting adjusted, we're feeling more comfortable, it's not bothering me as much. At that point, the Rebbe told him, it's time to come home. If it's not bothering you that much, if it's not getting under your skin, that means you're getting too assimilated to those values and to that environment. It's time to come home. There was a father that shared with Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky how happy he was that they were moving to Lakewood, New Jersey. And he told Rabbi Yaakov that now, Baruch Hashem, he could feel confident that his children will thrive in that kind of saviva, in that atmosphere of Torah. And Rabbi Yaakov quoted the Pasuk in Tehillim, Ki chizak shirayich, David Amalek writes, For you have strengthened the locks of your door, 
your children have been blessed within you. And Rav Yaakov explained to this man, he said, this verse is referring to Yerushalayim. And even in Yerushalayim, the holiest place in the world, David Melech is still giving the advice, the only way to have bracha infused in your home and into your children is through locking your doors, is through sheltering them from all outside exposure. Don't think for a moment that moving to Lakewood is a ticket to security. You still have to do your part in sheltering your children. And as you're hearing me say this, some of you may be thinking, that's poshit, of course. <laughs> that goes without saying. And others may be thinking, Rabbi, I thought you were more progressive talking about sheltering children. But the answer is very simple. In order to maintain our uniqueness as a nation, in order to thrive and not just have Jewish continuity, but to pass on real Torah values, we have to shelter ourselves and our children as much as possible. Now, there are always compromises we have to make. And living outside of Lakewood is a challenge. Living in Lakewood is also a challenge. They have different challenges. Somebody approached me that their, their second grade daughter was invited to a birthday party, and they're showing the movie Frozen. And, uh, you know, she, she never thought that she'd have to allow her daughter to go to a birthday party when they're showing a Disney movie like that. And every, everyone else in the class is going. How should she explain to her daughter why she can't go? So I, I told the mother in a nice way, you do realize that you choose, you've chosen to move to Boca Raton. That's what people do. And there are certain compromises we have to make. And sometimes sheltering a child too much will infuse them with feelings of resentment. And they'll come to dislike you and dislike Judaism. You have to know how and when to pick your battles. If every other girl in her class is going to the birthday party and they're watching the movie, is it the ideal way to celebrate a child's birthday? The answer is no. But if that's what's happening, and leaving her out will make her feel bad, then the answer is you let her go. So we always are making compromises, and the question is, how much do we compromise? How much do we allow what's going on, even in the Froom world, to penetrate into our world, into our home? I want to share with you what I refer to as the evolution of secular society. Evolution in, in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek way. There are three eyes I'd like to focus on. Three eyes that we have more pronounced now in our culture than ever before. Indulgence, image, and immodesty. I want to focus on each one briefly, and we're just scratching the surface here. There is so much more to delve into. We live in a world where Baruch Hashem, at least here in America, we have so many blessings, so much affluence. At the same time, that presents new challenges. There's a term in the world of child psychology, vitamin N. Vitamin N is the ability to say no. The ability to 
have guidelines, to have clear limitations, to explain to a child that you've already had three cookies and therefore we're not having a fourth cookie now, it's time for dinner and you have to have chicken. And that means even if the child is presently kicking and screaming and throwing a whole tantrum, the parent has the ability to say no. Saying no in a culture of indulgence is very hard to do. However, many studies have shown, and we've known this for thousands of years, that the receiving of things begins to generate nothing but the want for more things. And when children get too much of what they want, they often don't even take care of what they have, because why should they? They know that more is always on the way. There have been studies that have shown that since the 1950s, and especially in the last few decades, as indulgence has become the parenting norm, child and teen depression has risen significantly. There's a direct correlation between the parent's inability to set guidelines and rules and regulations and the rising of depression within children. Now, this does not mean, chas v'shalom, that within the world of affection, being able to give love and positive feedback and praising effort and building up a child and their self-esteem, that we give 100%. We love unconditionally. But in the realm of indulgence, where we feel that having too much of something is not to their benefit, don't give in. You're not helping them and you're not helping yourself. This is something we're fighting at the world at large, not just the Jewish world. Moshe Feinstein, this is going back to the 1970s probably, he has a a well-known tshuva. I just have here a snippet in the middle. In the beginning, he speaks about how to teach children about Amun and Bitachon, and towards the end of the tshuva, he has a wonderful piece on how to enhance shalom and mutual respect in any Torah institution. But in the middle here, he speaks about the challenge of indulgence. I'll share with you a few lines from Rav Moshe. He writes, here in our country, America, based on the abundance of blessing from Hashem, we have a greater yearning, a greater desire for all the pleasures of this world. All the good things that we call good time. A good time. Now obviously, Ramosha did not believe that we should live a life where we're depressed and we're intense and we're anxious. Chas v'shalom. We know that the, the Klal Gadol in Judaism is Ibdus Hashem B'Simcha. We have to live a life of joy, a life of, of, of Gishmak. But the definition of a good time is very different. Shigam Adam Ma'od. This can destroy the person. Yitzro. We become habituated in things that we don't need, and therefore we need the things more and more. Using very harsh terminology, Ramosha says, allowing oneself to become addicted to taiva could destroy the midos, 
transforming someone into a wild animal. And when it comes to educating our children, the Torah tells us, don't overdo it. Maintain the ability to set clear guidelines. This is true for parents and it's true for teachers. We have to be able to teach the students what's proper Torah conduct. Although we don't like to speak negatively about people, you have to share with them the destructive nature of a Baal Taiva, of never being satiated, always wanting more, becoming a, a selfish obsession of life. And to share with them the truth of the long-lasting real pleasure of doing things that are meaningful. Limit HaTorah and Mitzvos. He goes on to address the question, which is a, an interesting question. And without Ramosha giving us guidelines, I, I think we'd have a very hard time answering this question. He says, what do you do in a case where a mother brings her son to a yeshiva? The kid could be 8, 9, 10 years old. And she says, I would like him to be enrolled in the yeshiva. However, I don't feel comfortable with him wearing a tzitzis to school. His father doesn't do that. That's not something we do in the house. I don't want my son to do that. That's too much for my comfort zone. Question is, do we allow that child in the yeshiva? On one hand, you could argue, of course, <laughs> a Yiddish and a Shomo, you have the ability to take him in and, 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 and teach him Torah and show him the beauty of Yiddishkeit and eventually he'll put on tzitzis. The other argument would be, but what message is that sending to the other students? What message is that sending to the parent body the control that you have over the yeshiva. So Moshe writes, Hanachon Bezeh, what appears true to me, is the Afshavada Hayalon, the Lamed Masha Afshari Mayalid. We have to do all we can to teach that child Torah because he didn't do anything, he's not to blame. And Amir Hashem, by teaching him one day, he has potential to be a wonderful, upstanding Jew. However, that's only teaching him individually. Of a yeshiva, but to bring him into the yeshiva, where there are many other students there, that says Ramosha, I don't feel comfortable with. Because the message that's being sent to the parents and the other children is that in this world of indulgence, in the world where you could do whatever you want and whatever you feel comfortable with, you could also dictate chinuch. You could have control over your child's education. You could tell us, oh, don't teach them that particular subject. We don't, we don't want to go there. Don't say it like that. That's jeopardizing the authenticity of the Mesorah. That's something we don't have the ability to do. You could argue, but let's say they're not going to spend the money and get a tutor. It's either accepting this child into the yeshiva or he'll go to public school. And, and then the likelihood of him ever embracing real Judaism is very, very slim. Ramosha says, even though that might be the case, to sacrifice the many for the individual 
That's something we can't do. Now, obviously, every question has to be dealt with individually. There are many factors and there are many layers of complexity. But not to take away a halacha from this particular tshuva, but to take away a hashkafa. The idea of how careful we have to be not allowing the world of indulgence, the world of do and say whatever you want, don't let that impact the Torah world, don't let that have any influence on Torah education. Now, Moshe does make it clear, by the way, in that tshuva, that if the parents said, we don't feel comfortable having him wear the tzitzis at home, but we're willing to conform to the school, then of course we accept him with open arms. Whatever they do at home is their own prerogative, but at the school there needs to be expectations, there has to be standards. That's the world of indulgence that we're fighting. The second eye is image. There was a study originally done at UCLA, going back to July of 2011, where they looked at different popular television shows targeting the age range from 9 to 11 years old. And the study was a survey of what were the most prominent messages being shared to the youth on television. And in a list of 16 values, fame, which was number 15 on a list of 16 values, both in 1987 and again in 1997, went from number 15 to number 1 in 2007. 2007, there was clearly a drastic shift in culture where now the most prominent thing we're sharing with the youth is the desire to be well-known. That means if you were to ask a child, going back to the 1990s, ask a 10-year-old boy, what do you want to do when you grow up? So he might say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a professional athlete. If you were to ask that same boy, post-2007, what do you want to do when you get older? The answer would be completely different. The answer would be, you know what? I don't really care. As long as people know about me, as long as I'm famous, as long as I have thousands of friends on Facebook, and I have followers on Twitter, and I have likes, that's all I care about. I just want to be known. The top five values in 2007 were fame, achievement, popularity, image, and financial success. In 1997, only 10 years prior, the top five were community feeling, kindness, image, tradition, and self-acceptance. So image has always been on the back burner. But from 2007, we see now it's on the front burner. What happened? Why is the 1997 survey so different than 2007? The answer, I'm sure you can guess, is very simple. 2007 was after the explosion of social media. YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Now it's no longer about trying to think of the person I'd like to become. But rather the question is, thinking of the person I want the world to assume I am. I could be a total jerk behind closed doors. I could say and do whatever I want. As long as the persona, as long as the image, as long as the reputation is the one I want it to be, 
I've achieved. I was sitting at a Shabbos table with somebody not that long ago. Someone I don't see that often. Very sweet guy. and He's, he's a very funny guy. So we'll, we're schmoozing and often he'll ask uh, halachic questions. He asked me a, a strange question for his personality. He looked at me seriously and he said, Rabbi, how will I know or when will I know my purpose in life? When will that become clear? So I wasn't sure where the question was coming from. I wanted to explore further. I was trying to ask him, you know, what, do you, what, what do you mean by that? What, what kind of purpose? So he said, let me explain. I do a lot of work, volunteer work for my shul. And just recently I was going through some, some papers, some old stationery, and there were names of people who were very prominent in the shul 30 years ago. The president and the treasurer and the vice president. And they were people that I've never heard of. And no one in the shul presently has ever heard of either. So I was thinking to myself, everything I'm doing, 20, 30 years from now, no one's going to know about it. So, so what's it all for? What's, what's my purpose? And as I heard him explain his dilemma, it, it dawned on me that the question was coming from the perspective that if the world doesn't know what I'm doing, it's not really an achievement. If people don't understand everything I'm accomplishing, that I'm not doing anything. And that is solely based on the secular world where it's all about what they think of us. The sad news is, and I think on one hand it may be depressing, on the other hand it's so empowering. 200 years from now, nobody will know that any of us ever lived. Unless we're, we're Thomas Edison and we do something big, nobody will know who I am 200 years from now. Maybe, maybe... I'll have a great-grandchild who had my name, and that'll be passed down to the next generation, and someone's going to ask, oh, where's that name come from? And he'll probably answer, I don't know. I think, I don't know, my father's side. Nobody will know we ever existed. And that's okay. In Torah Hashkafa, we don't care. Meaningful, long-lasting accomplishment is not based on what they see. It's about who I am. That's fighting image. The last eye I'd like to discuss tonight is the eye of immodesty. We live in a world where so many barriers have been broken. So many areas of life that we viewed as off-limits are now the place of the masses. I want to share with you some information from the founder of Guard Your Eyes. Guard Your Eyes is a, a wonderful organization by Erlich Hayidin, Jews who are trying to help their fellow Jews with challenges, challenges of being able to access everything and anything. 70% of Frum families have internet with totally unfiltered Nothing blocking anything. 
devices, iPhones, iPads, computers, with no filter. In their estimation, this is not scientific, but they definitely have their finger on the pulse. In their estimation, likely more than 200,000 religious Jews are presently struggling with compulsive viewing of things that we would never have imagined. Going back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we would never have imagined that watching this kind of thing would be a pervasive, ongoing struggle in the Froom world. But now, likely more than 200,000 religious Jews are suffering with this terrible addiction. Now, after reading those numbers, I did some math. How many Jews are there in the world? So we estimate around 16 million. Out of the 16 million Jews, how many consider themselves Orthodox? And the answer seems to be around 10%. 10% of 16 million means that worldwide we have about 1,600,000 Orthodox Jews. If more than 200,000 from Jews are struggling with compulsive watching of extremely inappropriate material, that means that 12.5% of the entire religious world is struggling in this area. Your average from Jew, as we mentioned in the beginning, is exposed to things and ideas and images that going back only a short time ago we've never had any exposure to. Before the internet, we had Rav Shach and the Stipler sign their famous letter telling us that in a Frum home we should really not have a TV. If you didn't have a TV, and the only outside experience was the Hamodi or the Ated, or once in a while you have a Wall Street Journal, you were fairly sheltered. You were protected. You would see things now and again. But now, in our home, in our office, in our pocket, everywhere we go, we have a lurking and overwhelming challenge. And many of us are not passing that nisoyo. A lot of the immodesty is not the extreme, but it's in the realm of subtlety. When a, a man refers to a woman or vice versa by their first name, is there anything halachically wrong with that? Can you point to a simon in, in Sif in the Shulchan Aruch telling us you cannot call her by her first name? The answer is no. But there should be a sensitivity that calling someone by Mrs. Friedman is more appropriate than calling her by Shira. Her name is Shira to her friends. You're friendly, but you're not her friend. Texting. How do we text the opposite gender? Obviously, we have to be friendly and cordial. But there are certain things that break down walls, that break down barriers. I often tell people, I happen to personally think that a smiley face is something that it shouldn't belong on a text from one gender to the other, unless it's your wife. We don't text smiley faces. 
Now these are little things, these are not halachic, but it's in the realm of the subtlety that makes all the difference in the world. The way I dress, the way I speak, the way I say good morning, the way I say good Shabbos. Of course you have to be a mensch, and the answer is not to ignore people, chas v'sholom, you say good Shabbos with a smile, and you move on. That distinction between mensch and a lack of mensch is sometimes subtle, but that spells the difference between staying steadfast to our values and slowly allowing the secular world to creep in to everything that we view as holy. We have image, we have immodesty, and we have indulgence, and we're fighting this. Mishchu kuchu. The message of Shabbos Agadol, the message of the Korban Pesach, is for us not to be ashamed, for us not to be embarrassed, to stand up and be proud of who we are, even if that's in contrast to the world around us. I want to end with sharing with you the words of the Eish Kodesh, of Kalman Shapiro. You know, many of his writings were found after the war, really somewhat miraculously. And the Eish Kodesh has a beautiful marshal. He says, as a torrent river surges forth, sweeping with it all that lies in its path, penetrating into deep recesses and washing away all buried things, so does the torrent of public opinion sweep along the individual mind. You may know it. You may even deny it. But you have been not brainwashed by common belief. Carried along, perhaps more, perhaps less, you now think along these twisted paths. So stay away from the middle of the river. Don't be concerned with what people say. And I'll add in, even the people in the Frum society. But this alone, he continues, will not protect you. Because you cannot completely seclude yourself. Nor can you remain stationary in this torrent river just by standing firm in your place. You must actively swim against the flow. You may not be successful in swimming upstream, but at least you will not be swept down by the flow. This is true with spiritual life and the purity of spirit that you have attained. You cannot retain them against the flow unless you continue to struggle for spiritual growth. You must swim upstream without respite, upward, onward, against the flow. There may, there may be a limit to how far you can go, but at least you will not be drawn down by the flow. The only way to protect ourselves in a world against this onslaught, with such an a, a attack from outside and inside, the only way is to continue fighting. We live in a time where there's so much freedom and there's so much affluence and there's so much acceptance. But with freedom comes indifference. With affluence comes numbness. And with acceptance comes apathy. When we don't need to fight for something, we slowly begin to believe that there's nothing worth fighting for. And that's when we get swept down by the river and carried away, only to wake up years later and to realize how far off track we are. 
We have to pull ourselves back and let us take Torah. Let us make it as emotional, as passionate, as real, as intellectual as possible for ourselves and for our families and for our children. Let us get as excited about Torah as we do about anything else. The example I'll often give is if someone's watching a football game with their son and they get up and they cheer when their team scores a touchdown and they're not embarrassed to to scream and shout. But yet when it comes to quoting the Mishnah, Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, children pick up on that difference pretty quickly. This is exciting. The secular world of indulgence and illusion is exciting. And the world of Limonatoro, the world of Yantif, the world of Shabbos, that's just something we do. Mishchu, pulling ourselves away, is not enough. We need to take Torah. We have to make it real. We have to make it passionate. We have to make it emotional. We should be Zoha, Mirtashem, the Yantif of Pesach, to be Makayim, to fulfill the conceptual, the philosophical role of a Jew, to stand strong in emulating Avram Avinu, and to share that message with our family and our children, should be zochah to a meaningful and a joyful yontif.